Welcome to My Safety Tech Podcast with me, your host, Pete Thomas. In this episode, I'm joined by Nathan Haidt, co-founder with Safe365. Nathan and I first met at London Build in November 2023, and we had this uh, really great conversation about like quantitative measurement of safety performance and how important it is to one really to make sure we're measuring the right thing but then to make sure that we're really actually measuring it and then how do we sort of track and monitor our performance and finally how do we benchmark that performance against other organizations that are operating in a similar industry and I was really impressed by the safety index wheel that Safe365 had I just love how simple it was with one number in the middle which allows you to sort of monitor your progress and monitor your improvement as an organization. So I'm really excited that Nathan's agreed to come on the podcast and I hope you enjoy this episode. So I'm currently in a place called Whangamataa, which is in the Coromandel Peninsula in the North Island of New Zealand on the East Coast. Nice white sandy beach and pretty good spot at this time of year. Oh wow, that's amazing. I'm not jealous at all. It's freezing cold here. It's safe 365. Say 365. Is that a New Zealand company? Yeah, it is. Um, it's, a, it's a company that started uh, in my garage uh, back in 2016 here in New Zealand. And it's sort of one of those kind of stories, really, that that's sort of started there and has, um, has grown and um, you know, made quite, a, quite an impact around the planet now, which is pretty cool. We're pretty proud of that. But uh, yeah, its origins are very humble, very humble. No, well, it's cool, man. I mean, we had a great conversation in London Build in um, London Olympia a few weeks back. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I really thought there was some learning that came out of it for me. And so I thought it would be a great opportunity to get you on the podcast. And I think one of the things that I'd sort of my main takeaway was around this concept of safety culture and data management. And, um, you know, I've I've worked in the industry for quite a long time. I've worked as a consultant for a long time. I think one of my more memorable sort of jobs in terms of safety culture. I was asked to uh, undertake an audit of a local authority in London, and it was a white-labeled contract, so I was subcontracted to another company that agreed the contract, that agreed the scope, everything had already been agreed, and there was an hour in the diary that was uh, measure safety culture performance. (laughs) An hour. There was no data. And for that hour, they'd set up an interview with the chief exec, the CEO of the local authority. And it was a bit like, it wasn't quite this simple, but it was a bit like, how's your safety culture? Yeah, it's good. Thanks for your time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, things have definitely, uh, times have changed, that's for sure. Um, You know, when we look at safety culture nowadays, and we've, you know, we've worked with some some quite significant local authorities, actually, in in that same industry. And yeah, it's, uh, the, uh, the hour probably doesn't even cover the opening meeting kind of remarks to, to actually understand the scope and the, the breadth and you know I think you know from, from our perspective you know we like to understand our client organization really well and understand what they're you know, what they're about what makes them tick and yeah you're, you're certainly not going to get very deep on, on that uh, in an hour so uh, yeah things have definitely moved on. So how do you feel about the the, the data-driven approach? Because that was something that we, we had quite a lengthy conversation about. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think taking a, a data-driven approach to us or to me just seemed like a, a really natural way of surfacing what, what are in, you know, inherently quite technical and complex insights for a, a lot of people out there in, in organizations. And so being able to, to turn a, a theme or a, um, a, a qualitative concept into a, a piece of data that you can then analyze and surface and, and present and you know, drive action and activity and education and, and a whole lot of you know, good things. It just seemed inherently obvious for me to do it. And, and I think you know, with Safe365, we've been extremely fortunate to um, spend a lot of time building relationships and getting to know all the various um, sort of stakeholders in the industry globally, um, you know, whether it's your IOSHs and your, your NEBOSH and your IRSMs and, and, and all the various sort of national sort of organizations scattered around the place and it's just been quite fascinating because my, my background wasn't in work health and safety it was very much coming at it from a, a public safety perspective previously in an enterprise risk and strategy perspective so it's quite interesting what seemed kind of inherently obvious to me with that background was incredibly disruptive to the the work health and safety community when we first started and so you know to me using using sort of technology as a way to visibly show people their organization and, and the things that were going well and things that perhaps needed a bit more focus or improvement 
in a way that you know anyone could understand you know not just safety professionals but you know organizations you know c-suite board directors etc line managers even you know workforce generally you know if they, everyone can understand it then they can be part of the journey if it's a mythical kind of secret source carefully guarded by you know people with you know charter this or that after their name it, it sort of doesn't really support actually building a, a great you know culture of safety in an organization does it I'm just thinking about what you said. So I think one of the things that I really liked is the safety index. So it's this yes. wheel and you can see where you are on a scale. And it kind of reminds me, I don't know if you ever saw, it's like a, a personal development sort of yep. wheel, you know, where where you have like all of the Myers-Briggs of your life. <laughs> is that it? Is it Myers-Briggs? Yeah, fantastic. That's, yeah, it's one of them. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that, that, yeah, you're absolutely right. And you have like all these different aspects of your life. So it's like your home environment, your relationships, your work, your finances, and then you sort of scale yourself between naught and 10. And I think part of the concept, I hope, I hope I don't ruin this, by the way, but part of the concept is this idea that, you know, your wheel should be smooth, it should go around. If, if there's any massive lumps or spikes, it's going to stop your wheel from rolling, and it's going to cause you friction. And I really like that's by the way that that last bit i've totally made up so that might be completely wrong <laughs> in fact nathan you're the expert on it you tell me no i think that's spot on i think there's there's two, there's two pieces to that the, the first piece probably before getting a nice round wheel that's nice and smooth going down the road i think in order to, to achieve that you need to generate a degree of self-awareness right to be able to actually understand one you know what those ingredients in your in a, in a personal development context what those ingredients are in your life context that that you want to look at and then secondly, enough self-awareness to reasonably accurately you know, note where, where you're currently at on those particular sort of pieces. Um, and, and only can, once you've done that, can you genuinely tune into what you can do to actually get better. So I think that the, the self-awareness piece for safety culture is absolutely the same. So in our world, that's about you know taking the secret ingredients, putting them in a pot on the stove and taking the lid off so everyone can look in and see what the ingredients to doing health, safety, well-being really well are. Um, and I know that probably seems like a really obvious thing, but outside of the safety professional community, your average you know, C-suite member, executive team, uh, manager, middle manager that isn't a, a chartered health and safety professional or a safety professional, you know, they actually, if you said to them, what are the what are the, the top 10 things that contribute to overall health, safety and well-being, they'd probably struggle to to go past two or three of those. And, and there's some really critical stuff there. So if you can provide the tools that, create visibility and self-awareness for an organization in terms of its, its level of sort of safety culture or safety maturity, you know, that's like the first step to be able to set them free to do something about it. And then the second thing to your point, which I think is spot on, is once you know, you can see where your vulnerabilities are, where a little bit diminished, where you can focus on that improvement, then you can put the work in, make that improvement, smooth that wheel out and roll nicely down the road. So in terms of the the data then that goes into the wheel, surely there are areas in there that, that lend themselves very easily to sort of like a quantitative data in terms of number of accidents and incidents investigated or something like that. It's very, very quantitative. But there are areas that are very qualitative and sort of subjective. How do you how do you manage that and integrate that into that safety index? Yeah, there's a lot of different inputs that you're looking for to actually assess it. We turn all of the raters through the model into a maturity model. Um, so every single one of, we, we, we run an 85 element or 85 sort of lead indicator model. The easiest way of thinking about it is each of those 85 elements that we organize into 10 sort of modules is part of the recipe for a really a really strong fence at the top of the cliff. It's sort of the, all the proactive sorts of things. And if I sort of group those together into things like, you know, the right people in the organization having the right knowledge, you know, the right sort of engagement and consultation and communication and visible leadership and things like that. So more of some of the soft skills. Um, and you sort of drop into actually your, your actual health and safety management system. Yeah, that actually plays a really important part of your safety culture because without it, no one knows what they should or shouldn't be doing. So the system part of it is, is often missed when people think about safety culture. They tend to think about the soft skills and forget about all of the ingredients that actually enable this thing called the presence of safety to to be realised. And and so all of those we sort of turn into a a maturity model that that identifies kind of capability at one end of the spectrum which for a lot of organizations might be something completely new that they've never thought of or looked at through to the other end of the spectrum which is um you know you know best practice from a you know, some of it might be things like you know beyond sort of the iso sort of level and, and getting into some of the more modern r d around visible leadership and things like that 
And so for, for each of those elements, every organization, and we've measured something in the order of 20,000 of them since 2016, every single organization sits somewhere on that spectrum for each of those dimensions. And so to, to flush that out, we look at, we normally run some focus groups with, uh, with different personas from within an organization. Most organizations run some sort of staff engagement data model or survey, so we look at some of that. We look at um, some of the more tangible aspects as well um, for, in organizations in terms of the you know, elements of their safety management system, et cetera. We're looking for evidence in terms of some of the reporting, visibility of reporting, things like that, that kind of help qualify some of the thresholds or provide a bit of assurance around some of those thresholds in the, in the maturity model. Through that, in the background of the, of the product, we have obviously run a numerical model that's able to turn those, those raters or those capability thresholds into a numerical model which drives that safety index um, so that the index is just a numerical indicator or proxy for you know all the various responses uh, that, that, a, that a client organization has selected that they're currently at based on all those sort of factors I was, I was talking about uh, and so you end up with a, a pretty uh, robust pretty accurate but also in a, in a fairly time efficient manner you know, a very a very good view of a, an organization's holistic position as far as its safety maturity or its, its safety culture goes. The safety index itself is a proxy or an indicator for safety culture. And, and the idea of it is, and we're seeing this in organizations, is as, as you improve your safety index, in other words, as you make targeted improvements across the more vulnerable or, or lower scored elements across the 85 element model, as those things get put in place and you build up capability in some of those areas, you know, we see a reduction on the flip side and harm indicators that the client entity is measuring as well. There's a whole range of different sort of lag indicators that we look at, and every client's got different things that they believe in in terms of the lag side, and it's a pretty contentious area for for safety professionals to debate. At the end of the day, it's what's um, what what's remeasurable, what's relevant to the customer for their world, whether it be you know their LTIFR or Chiffer or you know absenteeism or you know churn or all the different things they're looking at. Insurance claims is emerging more so as a as a lag uh, sort of indicator value of insurance claims. Um, and so, and there may be a combination of those, but ultimately it's about the relationship from a hypothesis perspective around uh, measuring and improving safety index as a proxy for safety culture. And as you do that, seeing a reduction in harm uh, through those sort of lag indicators. And then sort of the third dimension that we're now starting to see, it's quite an interesting part of the equation is there's some other impacts on business performance that we're starting to observe for customers as well, which wasn't part of our intended impact model or hypothesis it's and it's and it's things like um, as as that harm comes down, safety index is going up. Um, we're starting to see things like improved uh, improvement in business performance. In some cases, customer service, employee retention, employer of choice outcomes, you know, reduced absenteeism from a particularly from a well-being kind of perspective and a, and a more balanced work environment. You know, which is leading to things like you know a different conversation with insurance companies around. Um, renewals and premiums because they're able to demonstrate that they're at a, at a helicopter view, understanding and managing risk, you know, in a more, I suppose, modern and measurable way. You know, so it's, whilst, you know, our business is fundamentally about trying to look after people and, and reducing harm, equally, we, we talk about building safe and sustainable businesses as well, which is which is commercially, socially, you know, all of the above uh, to support our clients. So that's, that's kind of a, I suppose, a five-minute sort of understanding, I suppose, of what we do and, and how how the, the safety index and how that sort of flows and how it's sort of generated and how that flows through to what we see on the bottom of the cliff, you know, down the other side. And then how, as a result of that equation, we're starting to see some other really, really cool, quite interesting stuff around business performance, which we're doing a bit more work on to, to measure that. You know, this is an area that whilst, you know, probably seems pretty obvious to you, me, and most people probably listening to this podcast um, a lot of people have looked at the relationship between um, culture and business performance and culture, risk culture and business performance. And no one's actually kind of proven a model around that. Um, and it's, it is quite challenging and difficult to do on scale. Um, and so that's that's a really exciting challenge for us to, to really try and unlock at a, at a statistical you know, significance level that's, that's pretty compelling. We, we can certainly see plenty of case studies where it's very clear and obvious, but ultimately getting that to a point where you know, you've got a few thousand organizations who have had the experience the same uh, effect you know, is a pretty pretty cool thing to aspire to. Yeah, and I think I think some of the areas that you, you've talked about in terms of business performance, sort of like improvements in customer service, decrease in absenteeism, increase in staff retention, a lot of that comes back to that very first point that you mentioned about self-awareness for the organization uh, and 
really how much, sort of in my experience, how much data they actually have on these areas. You know, there are there are organizations that will anecdotally know that they have uh, staff retention issues, but it's very easy to say, well, the industry is tough at the moment or there's a wider problem. Yeah, (laughs) that, you know, it's very, it's very unusual to find an organization that has tangible data on staff retention figures or, you know, tangible data on staff retention and who have benchmarked that against the wider industry to be able to say, actually, this is where the problem lies, you know. And this comes back to the self-awareness piece. What are the challenges around self-awareness? I mean, when an organization approaches uh, Global Safe 365, are they already enlightened? (laughs) Do they come to you (laughs) and go, Nathan, we know there's a problem here. It's an open book. Let's get on with this. There's definitely some different personas and organizations that we work with. Um, yeah, there's definitely um, some who understand that or have a, have, a, have a view or a belief or however you want to describe it, that um, this, this mythical thing called culture or high-performing culture or safety culture, they're sort of all the same thing. And they, have a, they come to us with a perception that you know, we need to improve this because we think it's you know, the right thing to do. I don't necessarily think enlightened. I think some of them are sort of on trend. They, they've heard about it. They they're curious. They 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 know there's something in it, in it, and they they're curious curious enough to want to pursue it. So there's there's those, and then and then you've got other organisations who know they've got a problem uh, in terms of culture, and and they they've got enough self awareness to understand that, and there could be lots of things that are indicating that around whether it's you know some some uh, adverse findings through a staff engagement survey that sort of really changes from previous benchmark, whatever it might be, or some anonymous uh, whistleblower type stuff, whatever it might be, and they know they've got a problem, but they can't put their finger on what, who, or why. And so they'll sometimes approach us, and we'll, we'll start working with them on that basis. Um, some organisations have pre have had previous projects where they've 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 run sort of safety culture initiatives, or you know, I think back in the day there was um, this, this similar but fundamentally different concept called a, a climate survey, yes. um, which was which was often used interchangeably with a culture survey, and they they are actually very very different concepts. And so we sometimes work with organisations who have done a bit of climate type stuff around you know, essentially a staff survey and, and got some findings and tracked that and use it as a bit of a barometer about what people think and feel. Um, which is part of the equation. Uh, it's a feeder into a wider view of safety culture, but it but it isn't safety culture on its own. Let's can we um, dig into that really quickly? What yeah, is yeah. the difference, Nathan? Well, the climate is essentially attitudes and perceptions of workforce. Um, really important, really important ingredient. But but within that climate view, it doesn't take into account uh, the practical realities around the right people having the right type of knowledge, some of the more health and safety management system components that actually enable a, a positive culture in the first place. Very really those aspects are included in an attitudes and perception type climate survey. And then you sort of got your, you know, things like some of the, the emergency preparedness type stuff, um, which often is in there as well. And then you've obviously got the actual climate side of things as well, which tends to be more around engagement stuff, engagement, communication, visible leadership, that type of thing. You know, I, you know, if I got, got asked a question in a climate survey, it might be around, you know, uh, is, is the management team visible and demonstrating that you know, health and safety is important to them or the business, that type of stuff, versus has the business actually screened our directors to ensure that they have the right knowledge and a governance role to perform this the task effectively which enables a whole lot of other things to happen in terms of culture. Uh, you know, it's a probably really a practical one that, you know, and quite often the answer to that particular question is no, we, we don't. We just appoint directors and they're there. And despite them having the, the sole authority around allocating resources and, and processes for the organisation, very rarely do they get screened to see if they actually have the, the background knowledge and capability around uh, work health safety kind of practices in a, in a modern work environment. So, yeah, that, like, that sort of stuff pops up. And so if you're looking at it from a wider sort of safety culture perspective, you know, that had come out very clearly um, that, okay, we people might think and feel a certain way, but actually we can see some systemic stuff going on that's actually fueling that when we look at it more holistically. Um, so, yeah, safety culture, more holistic, looks at all of the different contributing factors to the presence of safety or, or, or a culture of safety um, versus, I suppose, safety climate, which is... Is, there is a bit of crossover, but is far more oriented towards attitudes and perceptions of workforce and plays an important role in the overall safety culture kind of view. Yeah. In fact, um, because it's the HSL, the HSE, so it's the Health and Safety Labs that did the original safety climate survey, I want to say. 
Yes, I think that's right. Yep. And and you are right. In fact, I think I've made the same mistake where I've gone, well, the safety climate survey is a survey of safety culture. So honestly, I appreciate you um, sort of clarifying that really. It's quite interesting. But now that you've said it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, look, and as and I'm not uh, I'm not being critical of that. So in fact, when it came out, it was, a, it was an awesome tool that really got people thinking beyond just a health and safety management system, you know. Yes. So th- things have evolved and changed over time. And I, I think I think the HC is actually looking at maybe updating that particular tool, um, which is great. Things in the industry, you know, are constantly moving and evolving. And you know, it's important everyone sort of keeps up with that. Um, so, yeah, safety climate, you know, really important part and uh, has played probably a really important role in unlocking the wider spectrum view of of culture you know and the the other sort of point just while we're sort of on it is you know people talk about safety culture and you know as if it's like a completely different beast to just culture in a a workplace yeah Um, right you know you know and it's it's not i mean we use the term safety culture just to give it context to the industry that we're working in you know i and i I understand that that's polarizing for some safety professionals who hate that hate the term and uh, and we understand why but for a lot of people out there it just gives a little bit of context that we're actually talking about organizational culture and and safety is really just a subset of that and it's interesting like and, and safety is actually a really good sort of domain or discipline area within a business to actually start to work on a broader organizational culture as well because there's a lot about it that you can touch and see and, and articulate and, and show people. And, and if you can kind of use that as a bit of, bit of a sort of a, a, you know, a finger under the corner of the stamp to sort of start to peel it away, you can actually achieve some much more holistic like, culture outcomes for an organization, which you know, drive really cool things like you know, honesty and integrity and authenticity and transparency. You know, those aren't safety competencies. Um, they're, they're, they're generic competencies and you know, organizations that, you know, embed them in their DNA tend to have these you know, high performing cultures and they also happen to go better at safety outcomes as well. Um, so they are constructively entangled together, you know, the, the concept of a safety culture and, and actually just culture. So good to dispel that one while we're, while we're kind of clearing a few things up. I think one of the things I'd liked about the safety culture tool, and again, I've, I've never had the opportunity to use it. I've always tried to convince uh, various employers to take it on. And, and I'm sure one day I'll be successful when it changes. But one thing that I like about it is the, uh, is the benchmarking aspect. Yes. It's this yep. concept that you, you, you get this data. Well, again, like you say, you, you take this um, almost intangible, I think you described it as almost mythical <laughs> concept of, yeah. of culture or climate let's let's say because it is a climate tool and now i realize that those two are different and then and then you turn that into uh, in, into this quantitative data that you can see that becomes very tangible but then it takes it one step further and allows you to benchmark it against other organizations that are operating within your industry within your country within your area within yep. your sector and and i think that is something that's very you know that was at the time quite unique but i think this is one of the things that i love about safety tech and technology and software now is by its very nature sort of how data driven it is and how yep. you can't hide from it and and i liken this era that we're in at the moment in terms of safety technology like with systems like yours like say 365 i i just think it's a it's a very exciting time because you wouldn't for example put your money into google ads and say do you know what we're going to put half a million pounds a year into google ads and not expect a lot of metrics and a lot of data exactly and a clear rate of return clear return on investment that's but right for some reason with safety we just accept it. We go, well, we need to have a safety person. They said we need another safety person. They said we need X, Y, and Z software. But there's a very limited measurable outcome and return on that investment. So it's a fair observation. And, and we've, we've seen that. You know, we've worked with, with a lot of organizations um, since we, so we started our business in 2016. I've got a really curious... You know, you know, I've got a lot of faults, but I've got a couple of good strengths. And one of my strengths is problem solving. And I've got a really curious inquisitive minds and i keep asking annoying questions to to get to the the bottom of things <laughs> yes <laughs> you know um and one of those is you know that you know because because when we entered the market in 2016 we got a huge amount of of pushback and uh, blockage from from the safety community itself wow that for some for some reason felt really quite intimidated and and some of the behaviors and stuff that we experienced from from people was really fascinating and and I know my my business partner Mark Kidd and I like we I've always just been really curious as to why that's been the case and I sort of kept sort of peeling back the onion skins as we've got further and further and further entrenched trying to help this industry and and help these organizations you know and when when you sort of 
look at the safety profession, um, and I hope this isn't controversial. I'm certainly not having a crack at the, the safety community because it's really critical and it does does outstanding work. But when you look at where the safety profession professional emerged from, sort of IOSH, I think was created in the, the mid to late 1940s um, post-war, Royal Charter, and, and it was very much around trying to provide employers with a competent uh, safety professional to uh, meet their legal obligations and and provide you know basically keep employers out of court uh, through providing you know minimum standards to workers in terms of their safety experience at work. Great, you know what a fantastic initiative and and it's had a huge impact. But when you fast forward onto 2023 or 2024 and you look at the world and you look at you know the macro trends that are happening out there and you look at uh, things like investment market you know, investments in the market and the shareholder requirements these days, you know, things like ESG and expecting that, you know, if I'm going to invest in this business, we're going to take a 20% stake, whatever it might be, I need to know that that business is ESG positive. I just expect that they're compliant. I'm not even interested in the detail around it. I just expect that they are. What I really want to know is, are we doing everything feasibly possible to look after our people as best we can? Because in most organizations, people are normally half of the most critical asset that they have. Beyond, you know, in a technology company, you have a tech stack and you have your workforce. Those are your two assets. You know, it's pretty simple. And it's the same in a lot of other uh, organizations and industries. When you when you think about the, the safety profession, one of the challenges for the safety professional is they're getting a, a, this ask or this push coming in from shareholders into board, into C-suite, saying, hey, we need to understand and know that we're doing everything we should be doing or could be doing to look after our people because they're really important to us. But what the majority, and this is a generalization, it's not true in every case by no stretch, but in the certainly the majority of safety professionals are still coming at it from that, well, I'm, we, I'm here to make sure we meet our legal obligations perspective. And there's a real gap and a real void between the top-down ownership board C-suite ask of the safety professional and the professional training and, and equipping of the safety professional to meet that challenge. And there's a big gap in the middle. And so that, that I think therein lies, there's a lot of why in that, uh, in terms of how things are the way they are. You know, and, I, and I think it is closing. And you know, if we're able through our business and, and there's others out there trying to follow a similar mission, you know, if we can help close that gap so that we can support our safety professional community to elevate and really sort of deliver on not only legal compliance, that's a given, but also punching beyond that into this sort of more modern way of looking at things to go above and beyond and actually you know, do everything we can to look after our people rather than what's the minimum expectation we have to meet to stay out of court. Uh, and they're very different uh, psychological positions that for a lot, I think for a lot of safety professionals, probably quite subconscious in all honesty, it's not something that you consciously carry around, but it's more by design of the whole system rather than because people choose to be you know, compliance focused or you know, safety culture focused, whatever it might be. So it's really, it's really quite interesting. And so, yeah, building relationships with uh, training providers and, and, the, and the community and just building awareness of some of these challenges out there. So again, self-awareness, you know, if we can help uh, shine a bit of a light on things and help people understand you know, why and what the ingredients are and, and things like that, then we can do something really positive to support people to to move things forward. Uh, unpacking a couple of bits that you've said there, and I've written a couple of notes. I think um, I think the industry has changed very quickly over the last few years, particularly I've noticed it. And I think there is a little bit of resistance. I think there's a little bit of fear within the industry. Yes, yeah, sure. Because of how quickly it's changed. I've anecdotally noticed there's been a lot of staff turnover within the industry. Certainly in the UK, there have been a lot of positions advertised for head of safety, safety director. Yeah. And there still currently are. It's, it's more than I've ever seen. So in terms of, it just indicates to me that there's been a massive staff turnover. A lot of people have left the industry. A lot of people have come into the industry. And one of the things that I sort of see, and one of the things that I spoke about at London Build, obviously when I was speaking there, I was speaking on the future of fire safety leaders. And I spoke yep. about this concept of digital transformation and digital literacy. Yes, yep. And I spoke to some of the main training providers. So the the FPA runs some great training courses. Uh, exact uh, runs some great fire training courses. And I spoke to both of them and said, you know, what are we doing to bridge this gap of digital literacy? Because it's clear to me um, a there's a gap. There, there is undoubtedly yeah. a gap. And there's no training provided. And, you know, you have people working in the industry that didn't grow up with the technology that we have today and access to the technology that we have today. And I, by the way, I count myself in that. And I just realized that in the next 10 years, my role is going to be very, very different. So one of the things yes. yep. that I've done myself is I did um, 
I enrolled on a course at London Business School, which I completed recently, which is in digital transformation. And that was like a stepping stone for me to work out actually where do I need to position myself within the industry in the next five to 10 years. I mean, first of all, you know, good on you um, for recognizing it and, and doing something about it and, and getting out there and doing some some professional development and, and learning a bit more about digital transformation and what's involved. You know, I, I sit in a really interesting position within our company. I'm sort of straddling a bit of an apex between our professional services team who work with our clients and implement our technology and, and they are by and large sort of safety professionals as well and risk professionals. And on the other side, I have a close relationship with our, our CTO, Simon, who's a world's loveliest man and an absolute freak of a, a technologist. Um, he's just brilliant. But they do, they literally speak a different language. They're speaking in C sharp and we speak in English. And it is really difficult to to stitch that together so that you get a harmonious result between a, a technology you know, a full-on software developer technologist and safety professional supporting uh, the market one of the things that we so totally agree with your observations around that resistance or fear or whatever that thing is that's sitting in there you know, if you take a step back and you look at the safety profession you know there's a lot of older you know aging workforce in the industry and many of them do take responsibility for upskilling and, and embracing technology so i'm not generalizing this for, for all but many don't many are stuck in that sort of slightly paralysis uh, position around fear and change and do i want to relearn all this stuff and you know what i've done for so long is so has worked effectively for me so why can't i just keep doing it you know, these sorts of things that, that you hear about the reality is though organizations are looking for you know i mentioned earlier that you know that sort of esg sort of top-down push well the other thing that's also coming down a lot more on safety professionals from above is actually we need this to be efficient we need safety done well and we need it done efficiently it needs to be we want to see an roi we want to see things you know, in the same way that a, a product development line or a service line or r d whatever it might be the other things you're doing in a business a sales program a customer care program whatever it might be you know forever nearly those, those departments have had to demonstrate that they're, they're conducting business you know as efficiently as possible and actually safety has a role to play there as well um, it isn't, there isn't a, a limitless checkbook out there, especially in a difficult economic environment. You can do safety efficiently. And I think in, in a lot of places, there's a lot of effectively control strategies that are in place that have always just been there and been rolled over and rolled over and rolled over. And, you know, someone coming into organization with a pretty good eye for control effectiveness may look at that and say, well, actually, does anyone actually know how effective this control is that we're putting, you know, a couple of million pound into a year? Can anyone actually explain to me how effective this control is at managing the risk as it was intended to? You'd be um, blown away the amount of times there's sort of crickets that sort of emerge in the in the backdrop of the audio in those conversations. So that is quite a un, you know, disconcerting phenomenon out there for, for a lot of safety professionals, particularly those who have been doing it for a long time. Um, and a sort of, you know, maybe you know, in the 50, 60 age group, you know, looking at sort of retirement on the horizon and sort of stuck in that, oh, do I, do I evolve or do I go do something else for the, my last sort of rest of my career or whatever it might be? And that, that is confronting for people. That all said, though, uh, technology is not going anywhere and it's going to play more and more of a role because, one, it's consistent. You know, it works more often and more effectively than, than humans for, you know, like for like processes. I think if you look at a major cloud computing provider like Microsoft Azure, I think it's had about two or three outages for under about an hour in the last eight years, you know, 24-7 outside of that, 365 days a year. No no annual leave, no no holidays, no summer break. Just It just delivers time and time again, and it delivers consistently each time. Um, that's, that's something that humans struggle to compete at. Humans have got some other real attributes which are unique and that technology will struggle to replicate in terms of empathy, you know, people skills, reading people and things like that, which there are some technologies in that area starting to emerge, but I think humans still win the battle on that that area. So again, I, th I still think it comes down to that beautiful, you know, phrase self-awareness. Um, I think for a safety professional, they need to be really thinking about what technologies am I comfortable with? What technologies are out there that I should be comfortable with that I'm not? And they should be going into the personal development plans. You know, I think doing nothing is a really... You know, very short-term strategy that's, that's going to end in tears uh, because organizations are going to keep moving, boards of directors are going to keep pushing strategy, pushing for growth and challenging the safety professional to come up with ways to not only make sure that organizations meet their compliance obligations, that's a given, but we want to do that efficiently, but actually we want to keep people safe and we want to make sure we're doing the right thing by our workers as best we can, not not just the minimum compliance requirements. 
and we want to do that in an efficient way that demonstrates ROI for, for the investment we're making. And so the only way to do that is to have some sort of data to calculate that. And so, you know, whether that's in hours saved and even things like, you know, ISO accreditation and things like that, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy. I'm sure most safety professionals would agree, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of bureaucracy in maintaining an ISO accreditation, which doesn't necessarily add direct value to safety. But we all do it because we want to keep the 45,001 accreditation, whatever it may be, because that's been set as an objective for the organisation. For a lot of that, a lot of that bureaucracy, there there is technology that can really streamline that out and make it efficient for the organisation to achieve the objective. In this case, you know, keeping their their accreditation, but also doing that in an efficient way that, you know, was once you know typing out minutes and making sure record keeping was up to date and things like that, where technology can really streamline those processes. So I think your read on it is is pretty bang on. There's a lot that can be done out there by safety professionals to become more digital literate. You know, with you with your, your podcast, you know, what a great idea to to kind of work on a skill, you know, and we, we all do it in, in a safety professional or a risk management professional since we, we learn about, you know, new control strategies or, um, you know, we go and read literature, go to conferences. We, we undertake a whole lot of professional development all the time. But it's, it's I suppose, having that self-awareness and then the courage to take on the things that you really are low on to be able to build those up. And I think that's the challenge for the safety professional. It's, it's pretty intimidating to go jump in on a course like you've done, Peter, around uh, digital transformation. But in doing so and sort of taking that sort of fear head on, you're going to be so much better equipped to provide a great service to to organisations either internally as a as a health and safety wellbeing leader or externally as a if you're a consultant or advisor or whatever it might be out there servicing clients. One of the things we've done from a safe 365 perspective to actually help our clients with this this exact challenge. You know, we we had a couple of clients uh, leave, um, and we don't get too many of them. And every single one that does, we kind of get really interested as to why that is the case. And you know, we, we pride ourselves on having really good quality relationships with our clients. We take time to understand their business, to build real trust. We become really close advisors for their business, not only for safety culture, but you know, we end up giving them a, a you know, often get asked for much broader opinions and support to to help them through things. And so when they leave, we, we you know, we, we we're cut. We're like, oh man, that's a bit of a fail. Why why did that happen? And a couple of them we've really looked at. It's been around. You know, we've provided great technology, we've onboarded them really well, we train them, but then we sort of maybe had we're guilty of a bit of a set and forget approach sometimes. And and with the digital literacy divide that's there, that was there in some of these organizations, our technology kind of drifted inside those organizations. I'm sure of all you had different technology platforms, not just in safety, but in any discipline that have been implemented, you know, used, and then people sort of don't use them all the time. They don't become habit, and so they sort of drift along. And eventually, someone says, "You know, who the heck are these guys?" and and they cancel and, and move on. And we had one or two of those, and so we looked quite deeply at why, and we found that the level of digital capability in the client business was you know, exactly like you were saying. It was sort of a bit of a gap, and so we created this um, model once we realised that called uh, it's called PMII, uh, Plan, Measure, Insight, and Improve. And it's a cyclic model, and it means that we never leave any of our clients hanging. They still have the onboarding. We still facilitate, make sure they get good quality data and insights from about their safety culture. But then we actually touch them every month, almost sort of hold them to account in a funny way because that's sort of what they want us to do. And we coach them and support them from a safety culture perspective. The technology is at the core, but actually, you know, humans provide a really important component part of actually moving the, the dial from from where it is to where they want it to be. And using the technology and embedding that is a really you know, important part of that. And so the PMII model that we run with clients really helps safety professionals mainly, um, who, who that's sort of our core audience that we that we work with on that, to just have the confidence and the assurance that we will get them to where they want to go. Um, and everyone's at a bit of a different start, you know, starting line on that, both as individual professionals, but also the organizations that are in. Um, you know, there's different corporate you know, board uh, philosophies and different organizations, different C-suite uh, philosophies, different safety professional philosophies. That's all got to mold together and interact with each other to end up as an objective that you're trying to chase and, and hone in on over time. So it's, it is quite complex. And, and aside from the, the data, which I know is certainly the, the focus of this particular conversation, but the other skill outside of data that we also notice is really lacking is for safety professionals, particularly leading safety professionals, is being able to really understand who my stakeholders are in my organization and what are their motivators and kind of derailers, the things that are going to get them offside and what are their needs and a bit of stakeholder mapping and, and a bit of an influencing model around that. You know, that's that's another area where I think safety professionals 
in terms of rising up and filling that gap that I talked about earlier. I think that's another core discipline that goes hand in glove with the with the data and the technology because you know, we've equipped some fantastic people, you know, really punchy, meaningful insights which show their organization sort of the pathway to really, you know, meaningful material improvement and safety performance by improving their culture in certain areas underpinned by data. If that safety professional doesn't have an understanding of the different stakeholders that they're working with at a senior level, what their motivators are, you know, what their different personality types are, all these sorts of kind of generic business management kind of competencies, if you like. If those things aren't there, then that, that insight can't be represented effectively to that audience. And therefore, you still don't necessarily get the traction that you should. You know, you can tell it equally, you can have all the influence and kind of capability you like, but if you don't have data to support your argument, then you, you'll also fall on deaf ears. So I, I do think there is a, a bit of a, a marriage here between technology and really you know, data-driven insight as well as you know, soft skills, influencing capability, understanding stakeholders, working out a bit of a proactive strategy for how you influence that stakeholder group to get them to where you need them to be to unlock the results that you, that you want to unlock. Yeah, absolutely. I like PMII. It's a reflective of Plan Do Check Act, isn't it, PDCA? It is, yep. Yeah, yeah. it's just adapted for for our world a bit, yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm impressed with the observation, you know, that where you've lost clients in an organization that must be bringing on a lot of clients at the moment, because I know that you've got a lot of high profile clients in the UK as well. So globally, uh, you must be bringing on a lot of clients. It must be very easy just to go, well, we're bringing on new clients. We'll just, that's fine. People leave for all manner of reasons to have sort of reflected on that again, analyze the data and gone, why are they leaving? I think is, uh, is, is is quite impressive, really. But I mean, in my experience, what will happen is you have a, a health and safety software system. I think you're absolutely right. It will be set up with all the best intentions. Then it starts to flag. There's little control over the quality of the data that's uploaded. The reports that are exported start to get a bit messy, and then the data is not very reliable. And then you'll have a, a change in management within the health and safety department and they'll say oh yeah that's a terrible system you need to use this system which is one that (laughs) i've worked with before and we can set it up and it'll cost you like cheaper i can make it cheaper and then what'll happen is that project to transfer all the data from one system to another is an absolute nightmare and 18 months down the line and six figures spent (laughs) it's just it's just an absolute nightmare and i know i've lived through it a few times and (laughs) You sort of look and then when you reflect on it and you go, hang on, that piece of software that we've transferred from is probably one of the industry leaders in the UK. The problem is it's not been managed very well. And that software company hasn't really kept on top of us to manage the data. and The data hasn't really been managed internally that well. Totally makes sense and and spot on. I mean, we... Because the because of the sort of the space we sit in, it's sort of slightly unique, I suppose. To you know, we don't generally come up against the, the you know the sort of broad plethora of health and safety management system technologies in the market because it's sort of not really our bag. You know, we we sort of operate at this more this I suppose governance level around culture, and we look sort of at a helicopter view across an entire business. And one of the component parts in that is is the management system where you know we often there's a digital platform in there to, to you know, capture incident reporting and risk registers and, and reporting up to boards and all that sort of good stuff. And we, in fact, probably work in organizations that have probably just about every single one running around that we coexist with in these organizations, right? Because we see them, we we see their reports, we see the, the platforms, and we, we get a really interesting, because of the types of relationships we build with our clients, we get a pretty candid view from clients about what they like and don't like about some of these platforms and some of the approach philosophically behind them and i think one is that, you know there are some great systems out there that you know really quite good at what they do in terms of capturing uh, data you know incident data or, or risk and hazard data and get it into a system and people get told they need to do stuff and then they do it and it's all tracked and great reporting and insights and things that come out of it you know i think that some of the, the limitations are one there's a lot of there's a lot of safety uh, technologies that the people promoting and selling them aren't necessarily from that background and that, that can be a healthy thing but equally can be really frustrating for a client who, who knows what they want and they sort of get you know get sold something that doesn't actually meet those requirements so that so there's definitely a bit of that going on equally i think because of that digital literacy factor there is a, a degree within a lot of safety professionals about you know if you they'll provide you with a set of requirements about what they what they want for their digital system and you sort of read the requirements list and it reads like you know snow white and the seven dwarfs is a is a, is a wish list you know yeah, um, yeah. here's all the stuff i want so you know, my, my four-year-old daughter's Christmas list, you know. And, and so there's a lack of 
I suppose, digital capability to understand actually how, how critical are those things on that list versus the things that actually are really critical on that list? And are there things that you're just trying to, you know, processes you're trying to recreate digitally that you didn't actually need in the first place in a manual yes. sense, but are there? And then, and then here you are trying to like argue with a technology provider as to why this particular process needs to be catered for. You must have this feature, you must do this. And, you know, you see probably some good systems that don't get a start because of that type of thing. And so I think there's a bit of, there's a two-headed beast, you know. There's there's definitely the safety professional who's who's pretty hooked on thing features that, frankly, don't improve compliance position or or influence safety outcomes, which to me probably are the two key things I'm trying to achieve with a, a health and safety management platform, particularly. Yeah, I, I um, I've definitely seen that, Nathan. It's something that I've seen is almost this process of reverse learning. I've seen an organisation that tried to bring in a, a leading piece of software, one of the industry leaders, and. Basically, they were trying to get the software to fit around their processes, and the the software just wouldn't fit around the processes. And I was the one person yeah. in every meeting put my hand up saying, "Well, maybe the processes are wrong." <laughs> if, <laughs> if, if, if that would have gone down well. <laughs> if all of these other companies are doing it this way, and we're the only one that's doing it that way, and there's questions around that way, then maybe we need to review the process. Yeah, definitely. And and that like I think that's a healthy conversation to have. Like. You know, I think to your point earlier about you know why we go and talk to those clients that leave is you know it's because we're really curious and 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 one of our values as a business our business is you know we're pretty fanatical about making sure our customers are successful and achieving what they set out to achieve as far as you know safety outcomes goes uh, and business performance outcomes. So when we don't hit that target for a client, you know we're really curious as to why that is and we're not we're not afraid of acknowledging if we haven't done something as good as we could have. You know, and I, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of righteousness in the safety professional community about this is how you do safety, and and perhaps that drives a, a culture within the professional community of you know certainly not in all cases, but I've certainly seen it's like you don't want to be seen to acknowledge actually you haven't maybe done that as well as I could have, or maybe there is another way of doing that which is different or more streamlined, or you know maybe this process that I've laid up over the last 15, 20 years of my career. And now the operating context around us or the rules have changed from a legal perspective, whatever it might be. And actually now that thing doesn't need to be that complex. Now now it's only one step instead of five, you know. And having the courage to curiously challenge that in a constructive way and kind of go, is this actually adding value? You know, the, the analogy I'd, I'd add to this is like, you know, the classic old process of like, you know, bricks and mortar safety management you know we go through we do a risk register we, we look at each risk through the risk analysis and we when we start applying controls and uh, and we put in controls to those risks and then we we, we go and put, you know roll them out and, and incidents still start happening still happen against a particular risk so like ah oh, damn we need another control because we're still having incidents so we layer up on another control on it and another control and another control and another control and very rarely on a macro view of the safety profession very really do actually go back to the say we've got a list of five by now of different controls to manage a specific risk we've laid them up but we don't have to go and go actually now i've got this one two three and four aren't actually needed anymore we can actually remove that and do five well to actually make an, an impact and it's the same kind of analogy you know and I, I think that's those are the things that get people off the bus when it comes to safety and risk profession and, and particularly our stakeholders and within businesses you know c-suite board etc when they see us just adding stuff and not considering what we can take out that's not adding value um, because the rest of our businesses do that that's that's just an incumbent and in how they do things you know it's not just you don't add more and more on you, you you might add something but you might take something else away that's not effective and i think we don't do that so much i think there's almost like a perception that if we take control out therefore we're somehow exposed you know i think that creates this kind of jumping through hoops mentality because you know, workers see that and they go you're making me do this thing this process and we all know it's not it's not making this any safer it's not making us any more compliant just another process and then that sort of you know, loses the dressing shed a wee bit each time that sort of happens. And I, and I think that comes from that cultural perspective of not necessarily wanting to stick our neck out or, you know, say that actually, I don't think we need that thing anymore. We can change it. It's really interesting. Nathan, Nathan you're the first person that's ever mentioned that to me. I've been working in the industry for, I don't know how long now, work at a higher level, very well qualified, did my master's degree. And at no point has anyone ever turned around and said, have we ever considered reviewing the control measures and actually removing the ones that are ineffective? Just thinking about it and reflecting on that, it's so valuable. Because ultimately, there's nothing worse than being a worker and feel like you've got to follow rules for the sake of rules. Because then you know that you've got to break some of them in order to be more efficient, and you don't know which ones you've got to break. Whereas if you remove the ineffective ones 
you don't have to break them. You know, it's just every, everyone's worked in a place like that. Everyone's seen a workshop or manufacturing like totally. that where people go, do you know what? If I followed all the rules, I'd never get my job done. We always sit there and say, no, 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 that's not true. But actually, I guess unless you actually really review the control measures, there is a chance that that could be true. And that's not a position that you want to be in. And not only that, as an organization, then you're investing money and time and resources and effort into an ineffective control measure. In fact, I I tell you what this takes me on to. That's something I do want to sort of ask you about because I love this data-driven approach. And one area that I fear is severely lacking a data-driven approach is this concept of well-being workplace well-being yes. and workplace stress yep. particularly and this is this is something that i did study i did my master's dissertation on, on on this topic because it's something that interests me a lot let's take a concept like mental health first aid okay i, I can say the name I, I hope i can say the name on my podcast <laughs> without getting into trouble but there's there's a there's a lot of reporting been done on mental health first aid and there was this yep. um you 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 see two arguments that come up time and time again and one is at the end of the day we're putting money into it we're investing in it so it shows that we care as an organization really it doesn't matter what the outcome is it can't harm and then the other side of the argument is well we're putting money into that we could be putting money into something better if the data was there now by the way i'm not asking for your opinion on mental health first aid i'm just yeah, I'm just saying you you could pick EAP programs. Oh, you oh. you could pick a ton of other areas. I mean, well-being. I mean, that's. I mean, UK alone. I think McKinsey re- released a report just last year: fifty-five billion quid in just leakage money that's already been paid. That's just leaking and lost productivity through this challenge. It's a massive one. COVID's really amplified it. You know, post-COVID world, and it's a massive economic and social problem uh, and health. You know, frankly, health problem for for most Western democracies. You know, and I'm sure it's the same in other parts of the world as well. You no, know, and and I think if I looked at well-being workplace well-being here i'm talking you know we've seen you know we've seen the emergence of you know standards and things about what good looks like and whatnot but but i think at its core we're moving from back in the day in the in the late 90s and 2000s of you know work work well-being was you know get an eap service you know that super tertiary level uh, intervention that um, once we're broken people hey but there's a phone number you can call and it'll be confidential kind of thing probably wasn't even confidential back then but it is now you know it's super tertiary you know and, and then we sort of moved into the 2010s and and all of a sudden this, there's all these apps proliferated out um with smart devices in the second half of the the 2010s and all of a sudden, you know, there was a device that told us how to eat, sleep, move, and think, and be mindful, and all this sort of stuff. And it, hey, great, that's that's awesome. So let's move that tertiary. We've already broken people into sort of more that secondary. You know, we're still going to stress you out, but we're going to give you some tools to manage that. You know, and so that's where a lot of the well-being technology has been focused on over the last five, six, seven, probably ten years now. You know, we've all seen the, the these sorts of technologies and, and interventions, you know, the, the fruit bowls and yoga mats and that kind of stuff here pop up all the time. So that's all secondary control stuff. So we've still created the stress, but hey, there's a nice fresh apple waiting for you out there in the lunchroom. So yes. that's great. Um, and then you sort of move into the, I think where things are moving at right now, right at this very moment, there's a real shift to try and move the pendulum back to that primary control category, which is really the cutting edge, I think, of where the, the organizational well-being piece is at at the moment, which is how do we actually just design work differently so we don't actually create the origination of the stress that creates the well-being you know, issue that then needs the apps and everything else to manage. We, we know that this needs to be probably secondary and tertiary controls available, but actually if we get it right at design level and actually think about you know, well-being management system in effect and, and well-being culture and we, we get that right, then actually some of the secondary and tertiary controls become less relevant. Um, because we're sort of doing better work, you know, we're building a better fence at the top of the cliff, full stop. Um, so I think that's you know a two three minute kind of summary. That, that's what we're seeing out there in the wellbeing space. We actually have a um, a sister product line that's in beta at the moment. We're working with a couple of pretty significant organisations. So we have our health health and safety index, we'll say three six five. We actually have a, another product that'll be available in the UK from about February next year, February twenty twenty four, called. Uh, Workwell 365, which looks at um, well-being culture and looks at what are all these sort of factors that help generate their primary control outcome in terms of how we actually design organizations effectively to, to reduce origination of some of these challenges out there. Because I think it's a, it is a massive, probably dominating health, safety and well-being conversation. It's probably the dominant pillar of that at the moment and probably the majority of organizations we're working in that are outside just, you know, obviously like manufacturing or uh, even aviation, whatever it might be, where you've got, you know, 
big obvious gnarly risks that you know that, that's still pretty safety focused but i think a lot of other organizations especially professional services in particular they're really really focused on well-being because it's such a massive social and economic issue for them and, and it's actually a business sustainability issue in terms of talent there's a real shortage of talent globally and the well-being aspect has a major impact on employer of choice you know churn reduction things like that so um, but it lacks data um, I think all of the all of the reports and studies I've seen just recently, I think Deloitte do a lot of work in this area. I've seen some McKinsey stuff. I've seen some HSE stuff just within the UK context. And, you know, all of them are working out how to measure this thing called presenteeism, which is, you know, people are turning up to work, they're on the payroll, but they're sort of not actually there from a well-being perspective or a consciousness perspective. And that's, that's where a lot of this uh, leakage is, is occurring. And no one can really quite put their finger on how do you measure that. Um, and there's a lot of work going on about that at the moment for, for getting a bit of a either identifying some good proxies for it or, or getting some, some good data to, to understand it. But everyone knows it's a problem. So, yeah, it's quite, a, it's quite interesting. We're looking at, you know, people look at absenteeism, they're looking at churn, EAP consumption, things like that, a, a you know, program uptake of various interventions. I, I think there's a difference between measuring how many people will take up your EAP service versus how well you manage your organisation from a wellbeing perspective. I think EAP consumption necessarily t- tells you the story that you that you probably want to know, you know. I guess there's one last question from me, really. It's that as a safety professional, what areas of tech or innovation do you recommend that I look out for? It's hard to go past the world of AI at the moment, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, there's a lot of discussion about it. I think it has a massive role to play in, in safety. Um, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, like ISO accreditation and managing some of the bureaucracy and stuff around that. You know, that's a classic one where documents and things can be easily developed on AI where, you know, sometimes a safety professional would lean in and spend weeks on a particular policy or document, whatever it might be, procedure, safe work, method statement, whatever it might be. Those are aspects where AI, as it is right now, can, can just really accelerate things you know, pretty quickly. But then I think you start to get into things like some of the AI and, and, and camera technology around behavioral observations, um, being able to actually interpret what a you know, camera is seeing. And, and some of it's getting pretty cool around you know, even like muscle contractions and faces which drive certain um, you know the this you know symbolic certain emotions or behavioral patterns and things uh, that's getting pretty interesting to get into Definitely, that's like the most primary if you know if we're trying to verify you know safety culture you know ultimately it's it's i think someone once said to me i, I was involved as a, a young leader in an organization many years ago and someone who was i think was a life member of that organization said to me you know Integrity is, is is what you're doing when no one's watching, you know, um, something to that effect. Anyway, it was a heck of a long time ago, and and I think having a degree of AI supervision around, you know, and not all the time, but but actually being able to see workers doing work and observing independently without prejudice and subconscious bias and all the things that we all have going on to understand what's actually going on for people in the field. I think that's a really fascinating area and it's probably the most primary point of verification that we can get around culture beyond incidents and things that are, you know, the outcomes of it. Um, so I think that's definitely a, a, an interesting area. Um, I saw a bit of technology the other day. I can't think of the name of it off the top of my head, but it was uh, it, it was developed actually down under here here in New Zealand and it's, um, they can you know, geofence off areas film it through these AI cameras and give you know real-time notifications to site supervisors around uh, control effectiveness and things like it was a, a road work um, scenario and, and vehicles were going through a traffic management zone too quickly above the recommended speed limit and the AI picked it up and was able to tell the site supervisor to narrow it suggested narrowing the path to so close the cones on the side of the road closer together so it creates a narrow perception for drivers which slowed them down and then made a, tra- a managed traffic zone a lot safer for the workers that were doing the work on site. So yeah, it's like some really fascinating technologies out there that are emerging in that AI sort of space that would probably be the, the most in vogue um, technology to learn more about. But, you know, like to be honest, it, it really depends on you know, the listeners on this podcast, I think a lot of it depends on where your starting point is. Have a, have a degree of self-awareness on that. Like if you're if you've never even heard the words AI, I'd probably don't start there, you know. Um, for, for, for some safety professionals, it's make sure you're, you're really proficient on using Teams and Microsoft Suite, you know, for, for documents and whatnot. You know, that might sound really um, simple to some people. I'm sure it does. But actually, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of folks that we come across. That's not a given, you know. Um, so it's about understanding where you're at on the curve and then picking the next bit that stretches you and moves you forward without sort of trying to probably jump before you can walk, I suppose, because otherwise it, 
you know, it will get a bit intimidating and it will feel a bit more difficult to make those changes or, or evolve yourself the way you probably want to if you sort of tried too much too quickly. So really honest, authentic understanding of where you're currently at. There's plenty of technology um, advisors and stuff out there that aren't, have nothing to do with safety, but are just technology people that you can speak to and they can give you a bit of coaching and guidance and like personal sort of self-assessment on that kind of stuff to help you plot that path out. But yeah, I think in the modern world, um, the next five, 10 years and beyond, anything about technology from a safety professional is an incredibly, yeah, I, th I think doing yourself a disservice because it's not going anywhere. It's going to become more and more of a role in the industry. And, you know, I think those of us who want to be leaders in the industry, you know, we've got to stay contemporary just as we would have done CPD on, you know, understanding different control strategies or different chemicals or whatever it might be at the time, um, technologies in that space and we need to embrace it and, and wrap our arms around it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Nathan. And and I agree with what you're saying. It's amazing how powerful SharePoint is and yes. the ability to integrate it with Power BI, create a dashboard with some pretty simple data, really clear. And, and I've certainly had to drop myself into the SharePoint world, Microsoft apps and things like that. And it's, um, yeah, it's, yep. it's amazing how powerful it is. And then I did this um, digital transformation course. And then all of a sudden, I found myself sitting there with Python I typed type <laughs> command and I went, I give up on this. Clearly, I've jumped yeah. one step too far, if not many too steps far. too far. Let's just go back to to the basics, I think. Yep, 100%. I mean, you, you raised a really good one there. And so one of the other areas, which is probably more accessible to more people, I think, in terms of general capability around technology, um, is that Power BI piece. Um, so, micro, so Power BI, for those that don't know, is a Microsoft product. It's fully compatible with you know most of the business systems a lot of us uh, run. Um, and what it does is it, it turns what once would have been like a spreadsheet, you would have a, a series of data sitting in a spreadsheet, and then you would create graphs or visual visualizations to, to represent that data. What Power BI does is it just really puts that on steroids. It's much more sophisticated, and it produces um, some really nice visualizations, which are quite professional looking, and, and you can actually do a lot more than, than, than trying to do it in Excel. And then you can set it up to automatically update things like that. Um, so if you haven't experienced that, um, you know, because one of the bits of feedback we often get from clients about safety professionals is the the reporting side of it and getting probably a bit paralysed with too much uh, reporting about stuff that's not meaningful enough. You know, I, I was at a I sit on a board of another company who, who I won't name, but they do um, civil construction work and on quite a large scale. And that we had a, I think it was a, a six monthly deep dive where the, the safety head of safety came into the board meeting and presented an update on safety. And you know, it was a really, really, uh, really detailed report and all these sort of numbers and metrics. And, and I sort of understood it, but I knew some of the colleagues around the table had no idea what they were even looking at. And there was so much detail in there. I, they sort of got to the point, you know, is there any questions? And I had one question. And my question was, do we feel confident that the people we're asking to do these activities, which is like diggers, little thrusting machines, and put fiber optic cable in the ground and things like that. Do we have, what degree of assurance do we have that the people that are doing this work are competent to perform these tasks? And uh, I, you know, I wasn't saying the question to be a, a pain to the person and I wasn't saying it to, to be facetious. It was just a simple question. And sometimes it's the most simple questions that you know, it just garnered crickets sort of emerging from the, the depths of the boardroom and it became clear we actually didn't know. Yet we had done all this all this work around risk assessments and method statements and all, all this sort of we had task analysis, all these sort of things. But we couldn't actually just simply say, like, if we ask a person, we hire a person, and they're generally lower-skilled labor-type workers, if we, we hired a worker and we put them on a digger to clear a site, did we have assurance that that person was competent to operate that machinery safely? And it was it was like a staggering and profound moment, I suppose. But but actually, you know, sometimes it's the simple things. And so the point of it was it was around reporting. And if we can kind of if more safety professionals can embrace tools like Power BI, get to the real nub of issues, good dashboards where people can look at, you know, heat map, whatever it might be, so, so they can kind of get to the thing that you, the insight that you're trying to get the attention onto to then you know, share the narrative around it, which is the whole point of it. Yeah, you know, Power BI, you know, definitely recommend getting stuck into that and becoming proficient at it. It will save you hours and hours of deep Excel mining and manipulation. 
uh, and you'll 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 look like a rock star for it with your, your c-suite and your board so yeah i definitely endorse that one pete yeah amazing thanks nathan thank you honestly it's been a, a real pleasure chatting to you i appreciate your time i appreciate you staying up late thanks so much for all your insights it was a real pleasure to speak to you at london build and it's been a real pleasure this morning to speak to you pleasures of mine I could, I could talk about this stuff for for hours i'm pretty pretty passionate about it and you know i think there's a real opportunity to to improve things out there for for the profession and, and the organizations we all serve so that's what drives us so yeah any opportunity to, to spread the good word um, both on technology and, and in particular around safety culture always happy to give my time to, to do that so um thanks for the opportunity pete nice to meet you at london building yeah Look forward to getting back up into the UK and catching up with all of our awesome Safe365 friends up there in February. Amazing. Thanks, Nathan. Honestly, thank you so much. Pleasure. Cheers, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You too. Thanks, mate. See you. I really, really enjoyed that conversation with Nathan. And it just reminds me of what I said previously, that sometimes it just takes someone that just to look in at our industry from the outside and go, you know, I think this is where you need to improve next. Like you're doing 95% right, maybe even more, but there's just this improvement here, this bit we can make more efficient and we can make better. And that's going to make the difference. And we do need to make a difference. You know, when we, you know, there's a there's a very moral argument behind this of, of safety. You know, we're, we're in it to save people's lives and to make a difference to people's lives ultimately. And when we look at the HSE's accident statistics, you know, they've been the same for like five, six, seven years. So we've got to do more to try and improve that. And one of the things that Nathan said that was really interesting to me was about removing control measures that don't work. And I've really thought about this. And, you know, I think sometimes when we produce a risk assessment and we've got all our control measures on there and we've applied a hierarchy of controls. So let's take working at height as a, for example, and we start off by, you know, looking at elimination or substitution and all the way down to PPE. And sometimes it just becomes like a massive shopping list of stuff. And then when someone reads that, when they're actually doing the job, I just wonder, can they see the wood for the trees? And which one of those control measures is really going to make a difference? Which control measure out of that list of 20 that we've got is going to be the one that if someone doesn't get that right, it could lead to a very serious or a fatal accident. If you enjoyed this episode, then please like and subscribe. It really does make a difference to the show. Thank you so much and see you in the next episode.